The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Great to see you. My name's uh, Matt Fuller, uh, minister here. It's uh, great if I haven't had a chance to say hello. Love to do so uh, afterwards and uh, be able to do that. We're in uh, Matthew's Gospel at the moment. This uh, section, 8 to 10, let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, we thank you and praise you that for, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we are never alone. He is with us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you speak. You speak to us. Speak to us this evening, we pray. Bring a fresh clarity to our minds fresh desire in our hearts to serve you with all that we are. Amen. Well, we're thinking tonight, um, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? That's a fairly fundamental question, and um, uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll have a pretty good answer, I would imagine. He came to die. (laughs) He came to save sinners. Uh, I mean, something along those lines, there will be uh, good and and true responses. Why did he come? For for those reasons. But it's important to get it right. Because if we think wrongly on that, then we're liable to be uh, disappointed, uh, irritated. And uh, I guess some of us would feel that way, perhaps from time to time, uh, with our lives. We can, be, we can give a correct answer. Why did Jesus come? He came to die. He came to die on a cross to save sinners. Okay. And yet, actually in our lives, there's something which uh, matters a lot to us. It's the sort of presenting issue. Disappointments come our way. We may feel let down by Jesus Christ. If we slightly forget or or are allowed to drift to one side, why did Jesus come? He came to die to save sinners. If in your life at the moment you think, actually, the presenting issue for me is I haven't got a job. (laughs) Uh, I'm not in good health. And if you fixate on that, why why did Jesus come? He's not helping with my immediate problem. Well, then there'll be frustration, resentment, 
irritation, anger towards him. So it's fairly important to remind ourselves and get clear in our heads. Or it could be you're, you're still on the outside looking in upon the Christian faith. And you think to yourself, well, look, I, I know some Christians, and um, their lives are quite difficult, actually. There's, there's stuff going on with them I, I don't envy. Why would I become a Christian? Well, you, you need to, again, be clear. Why did Jesus come? I mean, it's pretty basic. Uh, and yet, if we allow that to drift from being central in our thinking, well, actually, we will be pretty joyless in the Christian life. So two little accounts uh, this evening. We're working our way through this uh, section, Matthew 8 to 10. Two little accounts that will help us with that on why Jesus came. We said this section, 8 to 10, it's very much about the arrival of the king. Uh, Jesus Christ, the king, arrives on earth, and it's fairly dramatic um, when he starts uh, his, his ministry in earnest, as Matthew presents it. Um, it's as if uh, he comes to a black and white world, and everything he touches turns to color. I mean, he illuminates, very striking. And uh, you may not have noticed, but certainly in this section so far, it's all been fairly positive. He heals people. Ooh. Um, he casts out demons. Ah. Largely. But tonight, or last week, the opposition, there was some hesitation towards him. And tonight, the opposition grows. So we can look at these two incidents, and we'll need to consider both the person that Jesus addresses, the individual, but also the response of the ongoing religious authorities. And both, both will reveal something. Uh, about why he came. Let's take a bit turn then. Why did Jesus come? Well, the first reason, fairly straightforward, I think, he came for our greatest need, which is uh, chapter 9 and the first eight verses. He came for our greatest need. Now, this, this may be a familiar story to, to you, you may have read it in one of the other Gospels. Matthew really pairs down the detail, gets, you know, no, no extra details for him. He just pairs it all down to focus in on the one big point, comes to forgive sins. But uh, let's have a look at it. Uh, so uh, chapter 9, verse 1, uh, Jesus then, he steps out of a boat. He comes to his own town. That's Capernaum, the sort of center of operations for uh, the years of his ministry. A group of men bring him this paralytic uh, lying on a mat. Jesus sees their faith, recognizes that as an act of faith, and so addresses the man. Take heart. And those are great words of comfort. Take heart. Uh, they're Jesus' words of compassion that he uses uh, repeatedly, actually, in Matthew's Gospel. We'll see it next time to the woman who's been bleeding for nine... Sorry, the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Take heart, my daughter. To the disciples when they're panicking, take heart. Take courage. It's okay. You think those are words of great compassion? Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Or you... Oh, well, what's that? <laughs> that's wild. That's... That's wildly insensitive, isn't it, to the paralyzed man? I mean, we read this account, and um, there's a paralyzed man. A load of people bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. I mean, you know what he wants. He wants his legs to work. I know what he wants. He wants healing. The crowd know what he wants. Everyone knows what he wants, apart from Jesus, who says, oh, your sins are forgiven. You think, oh, for goodness sake, are you on some sort of esoteric sort of spiritual plane? What are you talking about? The bloke can't walk. You know, that's why they've brought him. What are you talking about? Your sins are forgiven. That is... What sort of insensitive bloke are you? Come on, come on, Jesus. Well, not quite. <laughs> the teachers of the law, uh, which is a sort of fairly broad catch-all title, I guess, in the New Testament, the teachers of the law, well, they're struck by this, verse 3. They said to themselves, hmm, this fellow's blaspheming. They know that forgiving sin, 
That's God's work. So he's claiming to do God's work. That's outrageous. I mean, you see how that works? Uh, a few weeks ago, walking along the road, and uh, there was a car crash. Uh, stopped at a red traffic light, appropriately stopped, was a man in a Mini, and uh, a man in a big uh, Mercedes came up and uh, bashed him. And uh, all crunch, and you sort of look over, and it wasn't awful, I mean, no, no fatalities or anything like that, but, you know, bumper hanging off and uh, sort of dent in, uh, made. And, uh, you know, I could see, it was right next to me, and you could look in, see a Mercedes man on his phone. Um, and it was clearly his fault. I could see it was his fault. And a miniman, these can sound like characters now, aren't they? Miniman, Mercedes man, that's, that's gone badly. Uh, the, the, uh, well, let's stick with this. Miniman gets out of his car, and he, you know, he's not a miniman, he's quite a big man. And um, a Mercedes man gets out of his car. One looks slightly angry, the other looks slightly sheepish. And, of course, it's daft for me to that point and say, come, it's all right. I forgive Mercedes man. Mini man says, to, I mean, this is awful, isn't it? Anyway, the man in the mini, the man in the mini says to me, well, you can shove off as well. Nothing to do with you. I've got a problem with Mercedes man. That's my problem. He's committed offense against me. He has sinned against me, so only the man in the mini can forgive him. Well, that's what the false teachers get. They get that. Sin is primarily against God. It's a rejection of him as loving ruler, loving creator, in a deliberate or sort of, sort of mild man of middle class way. not interested in God. Sin is against him. So only he can forgive sin. Now, these teachers of the law, they get that. <laughs> you can't do that. It's blasphemy. Oh, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he comes straight back at them with what is... A brilliant question. Verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now that is brilliant. If you hadn't realized that, that's a brilliant question. Because answer it for yourself. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? I'm not going to vote. But um, which is easier? Of course, in one sense, your sins are forgiven. I can say that. You can say that. I mean, it's not hard to say. To say to someone, get up and walk, and for them to do that, that's very impressive. Very impressive indeed. On the other hand, you get up and walk, well, that's, I mean, doctors can kind of do that. Your sins are forgiven. That is God's work, which is harder. Mmm, clever. Do you see that now? That's a really good question. And uh, if I were, you know, if you were a teacher of the law, you'd be thinking, oh, rats, that's a really good question there. We're slightly boxed in by that. They don't know quite what to say. So their response is, oh, nothing. <laughs> they don't know what to say because it's such a good question. So what does Jesus do? Verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, oh, brackets, that's a divine title from the Old Testament. So yes, I am claiming to be God. Um, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, get up, take him out, go home. The man got up, went home. Now that is extraordinary. I mean, maybe there was a familiar with the account and so, oh yeah, we know what Jesus says. But that is extraordinary. 
Uh, some will know uh, one of the elders here, Simon Hallett, mainly comes in the morning uh, congregation. He's a, a professional double place player with the Opera House, got knocked off his bike in a hit and run a couple of weeks ago. So his arm is in plaster and his leg's in plaster. Six weeks of plaster, and then something like six weeks after that, would he have got enough strength back in his arm to, uh, to start playing again? He'll have to build the muscle back up and work on his uh, mobility, flexibility. So six weeks in plaster, then at least that long, they say, six, could be ten weeks before he can actually play properly again because his muscles will atrophy and they'll get weak and he'll lose flexibility. We're not told how long this man has been paralysed for, but presumably his legs are nothing. And he's got noodle legs. The muscles have just gone, they've atrophied completely. So what would he need if he was able to get up and walk? He'd need months of physio. He'd need assistance. I mean, this is not just a sort of fast-forward what a medic can do. This is genuinely miraculous there and then, which is easier, which is harder. Sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. I can do this, and some. Oh. Jesus just addresses him, uh, off you go, chum, time for you to go, get up, take your mat, go home. And when the crowd saw this, well, they were filled with awe, and they praised God. They recognized where this authority had come from. Now, it is the only time, I think, in Matthew's Gospel that uh, he, he uh, forgives an individual, um, sort of general forgiveness pro- proclaimed, but it's the only time he meets an individual and proclaims forgiveness to them. So I think it's, it's a fairly important Uh, case study that Matthew gives us here. What is his point? Well, he comes, Jesus came for mankind's greatest need. What does he address first of all? Forgiveness of sin. That's the issue. And that is much more wonderful than being healed even of of, uh, paralysis. Uh, I once heard it uh, illustrated this way. Imagine then this, uh, this man, and he's being interviewed uh, in heaven. I mean, okay, run with it. Uh, he's being um, interviewed in heaven tonight. And we could have him on the screen, and that would be pretty impressive. Um, but he's being interviewed in heaven, and uh, the interview goes uh, a little something like that. You know, how, how did you feel? How did you, how, let's have him here. Um, how did you feel that day? Pretty, pretty amazing day. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary day. I mean, at first I was a bit bewildered by Jesus, sins are forgiven. Come on, mate, that's not what I'm here for. But then I, then I got it. Um, actually, Jesus healed my legs, and, you know, I lived for another 40 years. So uh, pretty amazing that I was able to do that. Great. Uh, so you, you live for another 40 years. You know, what, what did you do? Well, eventually I started up my own business and ran things. Oh, great, great, very, very impressive. So um, presumably that was, uh, that was the greatest day of your life. Well, uh, no and yes. Really? It's getting silly now, isn't it? Um, No, no and yes. In one sense, no, because uh, I thought that day would just change everything about my life. And on one level, it did. I, I could walk, and I'd never been able to do that before. But if I'm honest, just a few months later, I found new things to be grumpy about. I found new reasons to uh, feel self-pity. Actually, uh, at that point, I had no work, 
And, uh, and uh, now I was physically well. I thought, well, I'd get a spouse really quickly, and, and that didn't happen. So actually, after a few months, I, I was feeling a little full of self-pity myself. And I realized, dramatic as having my legs back was, it, it didn't actually change me completely. Oh. Oh, yeah, but on the other side, of course, it was the greatest day of my life. Of course it was. I didn't quite get it on that day, but that was the day that my sins were forgiven. And so that was the day my place in heaven, glory, was secured. That's why I'm here now. So in that sense, oh, that was by far and away the greatest day of my life. And if I'm honest with you, I'd give up every single one of those 40 days of walking just for one minute here in glory with Jesus Christ. Really? You give, you give up your legs for 40 years for one minute? Oh, yeah. Just for one minute of being here. Oh, and I've been here 2,000 years. It's very wonderful. An eternity. Well, that's even longer. See, Jesus came for the greatest need. Forgiveness of sins. Far more important than healing the man's paralysis. Now, we need to have that perspective. Because if, if, we, think in our, if we think to ourselves, anything is more important than that, than having sins forgiven so we can go to be uh, with, with Jesus in glory, if we think anything's more important than that, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be slightly joyless. If it comes to be that um, we're frustrated by the lack of job, spouse, money, career, future that we can see, if we're frustrated by any of those and resentful about those, well, we, we've lost track of what the most important thing is. We'll be irritated with Jesus if we're frustrated by them and forget that the reason he came was for eternity, to save us for eternity. Now, he doesn't do this, but if, if Jesus said, you can have one wish, one wish, what would it be? Now, think carefully. Think carefully. I'll give you your, your greatest wish here. What would it be? Well, with Am and I, we might chat about it to make sure we're not being daft. But I guess eventually, if we're sane, the right answer would be, to be with you in eternity. Because that lasts forever. So actually, if, he's, if he gives us that offer to say, you know what, I just like a dream job now. You know what, I just like millions at my disposal. That would be very short-sighted and very foolish indeed. Jesus says, look, I've come for the greatest need. Don't, don't let that slip from your thinking if you're a Christian. Because you'll lose your... Delight, joy, contentment, you'll be frustrated, resentful. And if you've never got that clear, that is the greatest need. That's why he's come. Jesus came for our greatest need. So he didn't come necessarily to uh, give us the job we desire, the, the relationships we desire, the, the financial situation we desire. He did, he did, I mean, he might give us those. Who knows? I don't know. He might give those to you. That would be good. But he came for the greatest thing. Forgiveness of sins. That's the first reason then. He came for the, the, the greatest need. The second thing, well, it's slightly different. He only came for the sick. 
which is uh, this incident with uh, Matthew, the tax collector. He only came for the sick, which is interesting. He didn't come for everyone. But you recognize that. Jesus didn't come for everyone in the world. So, I mean, worth making sure you understand this one, that he came for you, because not for everyone. So uh, he, a uh, busy day as ever, they all seem to be fairly busy in Jesus' life. He's uh, healed the paralytic and off he goes uh, wandering on the shore of Capernaum. And uh, Capernaum was uh, a shipping port, an important border town between two regions. So lots of uh, trade moving back and forth. So lots of taxes and duties as it crosses from one region to another. So it's a fairly wealthy place to work. And as Jesus wanders along there counting his, I don't know, his euros, his shekels, is uh, Matthew the tax collector. Now, uh, tax collectors in those days, not the most popular of people. Uh, they leased their businesses from, uh, he would have done it from Herod Antipas uh, under the Romans. And uh, they were well known for extortion, corruption. Uh, you may not remember, but uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds them up as the worst in society. You know, even the tax collectors and sinners are kind to those who are kind to them. I mean, even them. So Jesus well knows their reputation. They're awful. They're, uh, they're the scum. They're, you, know, they're, you don't like tax collectors uh, at that society of the time. So uh, in Jewish law, they would be disqualified. Matthew would have been disqualified from bearing witness in court because he's a corrupt man. He uh, would have been excommunicated, kicked out of his synagogue because he was unclean. He spent too much time with Gentiles, with Romans. He would have been one who brought disgrace upon his family because tax collector was uh, um, an unimpressive career. So, you know, he's got problems there. And so Jesus wanders up to this man, this sort of man, and says, quite simply, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, that's a pretty immediate response, isn't it? I mean, presumably he's heard somewhat of Jesus' teaching going on, and up he gets and uh, follows him. In fact, he does a couple of things. Uh, in one sense, you can say he gives up his career and he throws a party. It's slightly what he does. So he gets up and walks away from his tax booth. He's given up his career. That's a fairly dramatic thing to do. I mean, he's been, it's much more for, uh, for Matthew, the tax collector, than it is for a fisherman. Fishermen, you know, earlier on in the gospel, uh, Peter, Andrew, uh, James, uh, John, the, um, uh, Jesus says, come, fishermen, follow me. And they go, oh, all right, we'll do that, and we'll just you know, leave our boats and nets behind. But if it all goes wrong, if it all goes belly up and following you is a disaster, I guess we can go back and fish again. But for Matthew here, he walks away from his tax booth. He quits his job, um, and someone else will fill the tax booth. So this is quite an act of faith for him. He's, it's costs, Jesus says. Come, follow me. Okay. I'll throw away my business, okay? That's a dramatic thing to do. That's enormous trust, but it's not a begrudging, well, there's a lot to give up. Well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I'd better stop my giving to the local synagogue budget carefully. No, the the thing he does when he gives up is he throws a party. (laughs) So uh, he's clearly clearly got a bit of money stashed in the bank, um, but he throws a party. And invites Jesus along and uh, all his uh, mates, and obviously would have had friends, maybe uh, a load of reprobates like him. He doesn't puff his cheeks out and say, follow you. Well, I suppose I ought to. I guess it's the sensible thing to do. He says, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, and I'll, I'll throw my job and off I go. Okay. I, I enjoy one, uh, one writer put it this way. He lost a comfortable job, but found a destiny. He lost a good income, but found eternity. 
He lost his security, but found an adventure the likes of which he'd never dreamed. And I guess that's true. Levi's thr- uh, sorry, Matthew is thrilled with what's gone on here. Pharisees, well, they're not so keen. They're not so keen. So uh, they, they come into see, they come into view in uh, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, sinners, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, presumably uh, big house, Matthew, uh, dinner in the atrium, anyone could walk by and go, oh, look, look who he's having dinner with. Anyone could look in and see. Uh, apparently houses in those times were really brilliant. If you were nosy, you could look in and, and see what was going on. They look in and see. Uh, oh, verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? We're not told if that's sort of bewilderment or anger or irritation. Why does he do that? Now, they don't ask Jesus, maybe a bit intimidated by him, but Jesus hears. Now, I'm sympathetic with them at this point. You know, you're in a big room, lots of people talking, and... Um, and then it just goes quiet just at the moment you say and isn't Jane's dress awful and everyone hears um, it just, oh, and you know why did that happen and that's, that tends to happen to me <laughs> not that I dislike Jane's dress whoever she is but um, uh, that sort of comment why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners oh and everyone hears oops um, well, Jesus certainly hears this And he comes in with just another great line. Not a question this time, but a really killer line. Verse 12. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he gives them a prescription. Not take two of these four times a day, but take Hosea 6 and go and think about it. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which Jesus means, look up. Of course, you know, you're meant to offer your sacrifices, but I'm not interested in sort of legal, ceremonial piety if you don't care for those who have a lot less. I'm not interested unless you have a heart which is merciful. I'm not interested in that sort of religion. See, the problem is, as he goes on to say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, if you think you're righteous, he'd say to them, he'd say to us, if you think you're righteous, you have at least two problems, at least two problems. Uh, One is you're insecure, and the second is you're patronizing, or you have a sense of superiority. If you think you're righteous, that is, you relate to God on the basis of your own behavior, well, you are insecure because one day you think, oh, I've done very well today. God must love me. The next day you think, oh, I've slightly upset someone. I'm not so sure today. There's insecurity. But I think his point here is you you have a sort of sense of superiority. I am righteous. He is not. I am a Pharisee. He is a tax collector. The problem in the world is him. The answer to the world is me. <laughs> and uh, there's, a, there's a sort of sense of superiority, and there's a problem there. You'll always look down on those who don't meet your standards, which is <laughs> completely wrong. Jesus is saying, look, if you understand why I've come, if you understand 
the gospel, you can't do that. You'll think to yourself, God has to have mercy upon me, therefore I have to relate to other people with mercy. I don't relate to them on the basis, I'm better than you. I can't do that. I know I'm sick. All I am is one sick person pointing other sick people to a doctor. That's all I've got. I've got nothing. I just know who the doctor is. But they haven't understood that. So he says, I've not come to call the sinners. Sorry, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Of course, in one sense, uh, Jesus will explain elsewhere, look, everyone is a sinner. Everyone has this sickness that requires him to heal them. But, I mean, it's, not, it's a fairly obvious uh, metaphor that he's using here. See, actually, there's a pandemic of this sickness. Everyone has it. It's a sickness that disables us. Because we'll never, we can't live lives which are good enough. We can't do it. We're disabled, spiritually speaking. It's a sickness which quarantines us. We're cut off from a holy God and can't get near him. It's a sickness that is progressive. Because actually, you may not realize this, but generally as people get older and reject the Christian faith, they become a little more stubborn. Not, fortunately, not always the way, but often the way. People become increasingly stubborn. It's a progressive sickness. But fourth and worst, it's a fatal sickness because it leads to spiritual death. So elsewhere, Jesus explained, Look, this sickness that I've come to heal, you all have it. We all have it. It's sin. It's desperate. But if you think you're healthy, well, you won't require me as a doctor. Let's think about it this way. And there are two obvious responses to Jesus' comment. Think about it this way. Um, imagine then your, your heart was about to give out. Doctors, I don't know, a month. Your heart's about to give out. Chronic heart failure. And you desperately need a transplant. Now, if you know that and believe that, uh, it's very different to if you're in denial. So say that... You, Tomorrow morning, a uh, doctor comes into your office. Run with this. A uh, doctor comes into your office, uh, and he's got one of those uh, boxes. It's full of ice with a heart uh, inside it, and says, I've got a heart transplant for you. And he starts sort of unraveling all his tools and spraying his Dettol, probably a bit, hopefully a bit more than that. Uh, so sort of clears the desk. We've got to do it now. We've got to do it now. Um, now, you respond in one of two ways. If you think you've got no problem with your heart, what will you do? As he sort of plugs in his drill, yeah, just got to, you know, got to open you up here. It seems like it's working well. You say, get away, you nutcase. Get away from me. What are you doing? You're not operating here. You're crazy, man. Get, get out of here. If you think you've got no problem with your heart, you'd just be outraged and just get out. Where's security? Oh, it's just me in this office. Um, you know, you just you'd do anything. You're just to get rid of him. If you know... If you know your heart is, prob is problematic, if you know you've been told you've, you've got a month, and someone walks in and says, here's a heart, it'll work with you, blood types, etc., compatibility, what would you do? Uh, you'd collapse in tears or something like that, wouldn't you? I never thought, 
I never thought I had a chance. Jesus says, I'm a doctor. I've come for the sick, not for those who are self-righteous and don't think they need me. See, these, the religious folk here, the Pharisees, get away, you nutcase. No problem with me. I've got no problem at all. Matthew and his friends, oh, we desperately need you. We're fully aware of that. We're fully aware of our condition before God. We desperately need a doctor. We desperately need a saviour for our sin. But Jesus, we'll all be in one of two camps. We'll either recognise our desperate need or we'll say, get away. They're not interested. Not interested in you. So Jesus, he's pointing out here, I mean, it's just the simple gospel in one sense. No one, no one is so good they don't need him as a saviour. But no one is so bad that they're beyond his salvation. You see, you see that very clearly. Matthew, the worst of society, yeah, he can be saved. But the people who think they're too good, well, they won't be interested in Jesus. How can he forgive? How can he heal? Well, of course, we know this if we read on in Matthew's gospel. He dies to do that. Uh, I watched on uh, the other night, uh, Seven Pounds. Have you seen that Will Smith film, uh, Seven Pounds? Uh, good film. Uh, a little sad. Uh, in it, Will Smith uh, determines, uh, he's, he, uh, he's racked by guilt, actually. He's been involved in a car crash uh, in which some people have died. But he resolves then he's going to give his life to save a number of people. So he, he, the whole film is all about this. Eventually, he commits suicide. He does it by jumping into a bath of ice, so everything is preserved. But he's written out a note in full. I want my eyes uh, to go to this guy. I want my heart to go to this woman. My lungs, they go to my brother. Uh, my liver goes to this woman. My bone marrow to this boy. My house, that goes to that woman who's been battered. And uh, it's very moving. At the end, at his funeral, they all come together, all these people who've had these different transplants. And uh, they sort of cry as they gather together and see one another because they're celebrating the life of um, Ben, he's in the character in the film, Ben Thomas, who has uh, given his life for these just seven people. And of course, that's how Jesus heals. Not because he's guilty, but because he loves. He gives his life so that we can be healed of our sickness or our sin. So look, why did he come? Why did he come? Well, well let me put it this way. If, if you're a good person, or if you think you're a good person, I mean, don't worry about Jesus, because he's not interested in you. If, if, you don't, if you don't think you need any, pro- if you don't think there's a problem with you, if you don't think you, your, your sin is that bad, if you don't think you're sick spiritually, well, Jesus isn't interested in you. He didn't come for you. Oh, look, when you die... You'll regret never having gone to him. But if you think you're good, Jesus hasn't come for you. If you know you're not, if like many of us here, you know you're flawed, you know you've sinned against God, you know actually, if you're honest, your life is a bit of a mess, spiritually speaking, sometimes, often. If you know you have a problem, you understand Jesus' diagnosis, you'll be thrilled with him. You recognize that he came to meet your greatest need. He died to take you from hell to heaven for eternity by the forgiveness of sins. You get that 
And if that is, if that is our greatest need, the fact that he does that, that's more important than anything else that we would like in this life but haven't got. If you had one choice, one wish, what would you ask Jesus for? It's got to be that, hasn't it? It's got to be eternity. Uh, many will be familiar, uh, familiar with the story of uh, uh, Joni Erickson Tata. She was the uh, American girl, 17 years old. She um, uh, had a diving accident, which uh, rendered her a, a paraplegic—no, sorry, a quadriplegic—so um, paralysed from uh, from the neck down, sort of gnarled, gnarled uh, limbs, and at first very, very bitter and angry towards God. But uh, as a Christian, eventually she she learned to trust Him and uh, has become a very celebrated Christian speaker, speaking of the hope uh, she has in Jesus Christ. I mean, a very determined woman learned to paint by having a paintbrush in her mouth, uh, and has really made the most of her life. The, I was reading some stuff of hers again recently, um, and she, uh, she wrote a load of, I mean, these are her sort of 17-year-old efforts or 18-year-old efforts. She wrote a load of little poems when she was starting to come to terms with what's happened. Limericks, really, I guess. Let me give you just a couple. Earthly joys and earthly tears are simply confined to earthly years. <laughs> Very simple, isn't it? But she knows the joy she'll have forever. So she puts it this way. I'm Christ the Savior's own bride, and redeemed I shall stand by his side. He will say, shall we dance? And our endless romance will be worth all the tears that I've cried. Oh, yeah, it's been hard for me in this life. Yeah, I've cried. I'm not always the public face you see standing up and saying, it's wonderful to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'm deeply upset, but I know. I know that Jesus died or Jesus came for my greatest need. And just to be there for one minute, it'll be worth every tear, every frustration, every moment of pain, and it will go on forever. He came for our greatest need, the forgiveness of sin. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you that you care for us so much. You tell us to cast every anxiety upon you, and you know our anxieties of today and tomorrow, and they're real, and you can help us with them. But would you drive deeper into our hearts that Jesus came for our greatest need? And when we get there, when we're sat with him in eternity, it'll be worth way beyond every tear, every frustration of this life. So would you remind us he came for our greatest need so that we would be people who are thankful and rejoice in him. Amen.